Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. All brought to you by Ritual Multivitamins. Much more on them in just a moment. And Jim, let's get to our good martini. And what was frustrating for President Trump is now frustrating for President Biden. A single judge derailing a major immigration initiative in the early days of an administration. For the libs, it was that district court judge out in Hawaii who kept making decisions that struck down Trump orders and it applied to the whole country and it led to a protracted legal fight that uh, really still isn't over yet. Business Insider, a federal judge in Texas temporarily blocked the Biden administration's 100-day deportation moratorium on Tuesday, stalling the administration's early immigration reform goals. The freeze, an executive order signed by President Biden alongside a stack of other first-day executive orders, was blocked by U.S. District Judge Drew B. Tipton of the Southern District of Texas. Tipton was appointed by President Trump, and on Tuesday, he ruled that the Biden administration's memo was, quote, likely illegal and, quote, not only fails to consider potential policies more limited in scope and time, but also fails to provide any concrete, reasonable justification for a 100-day pause on deportations. So, Jim, this is obviously an issue that ought to be decided legislatively. That doesn't really happen very much anymore. Uh, So Biden's trying to do this unilaterally. He talked about this as some arbitrary goal of his in the first 100 days. He tried to act on it. Shot down. Yeah, I was really hoping that at some point uh, we'd see a public statement from, if not the former president, than anybody who'd worked on immigration issues, whether it was Stephen Miller or uh, former you know, Department of Homeland Security officials, ICE directors, any of them to go out and say, ah, nationwide injunctions from one judge, they're the worst. And, and look, there is a legitimate argument to be said about, wait a second, if you, uh, the, the president has these sorts of authorities through executive orders, he runs the executive branch, uh, the president's authority, particularly in immigration areas, is, is pretty, I don't want to say unlimited, but not with many limits. Um, and so I can understand the grinding of the teeth on the part of the Biden administration here, while the rest of us kind of chuckle at how turnabout is fair play. When, and I, I do kind of wonder if this is what the founders intended uh, about whether one judge looking at the law can issue a nationwide injunction and effectively undo a presidential action. Because um, we all you know, have our suspicions that some judge out there, if you, if you go around and kind of shop in just the right jurisdiction, you can find a judge who will say, well, I don't think that's just, I'm going to strike it down and completely undo this sort of thing. Never mind the president may have you know, run on this and this may have been a, a big campaign uh, platform. And this applies whether the president is Biden or whether the president is Trump. The good news is you have an appeals process and we have to have faith that even if you can find a judge who's kind of uh, willing to stretch the law or go beyond uh, a reasonable interpretation of the law in, in the, you know, in pursuit of an ideological point or something political, that the appeals process will look at it with a fresh set of eyes and not be looking for a way to uh, stick it to a president and, and all that stuff. You know, the judges are supposed to be objective. They're supposed to, justice is supposed to be blind. They're not supposed to let their opinions of the administration influence this. And generally, 
you know, when the Trump administration lost these kind of things, it generally was that they were losing on the merits of the case, hadn't filed the paperwork correctly, hadn't met some sort of statutory deadline or, or something like that. Nonetheless, in the meantime, Greg, you and I are, are going to laugh our butts off of, uh, about this. <laughs> what was the point of this in the first place? Was it just another sop to a, a, a major constituency that he was trying to appease and appeal to during the campaign? Or was there actually a reason that uh, a 100-day pause on this was going to do some good. It sounds to me like he was just uh, trying to pander here. Well, I was going to say, Greg, if you remember the 20 minutes or so where the Democratic Party as a whole was demanding to abolish ICE, <laughs> they had you know, responded to kids in cages, never mind that this started under Obama, uh, and various other, you know, the, basically the idea, the, the perception became that immigration and customs enforcement agents and officials were a bunch of thugs that they were you know, not treating the people who they were pursuing and detaining with uh, the kind of respect we would expect for anybody, even if you, the accused have rights, uh, we're not a country that believes in um, a necessary infliction of pain or anything like that. And you know, there was a stretch there with the entire Democratic Party. And you could argue, particularly if we saw this in a lot of those primary debates, basically began to believe that the entire concept of enforcing immigration laws was inherently unjust and that it should not occur. As time went by, Democrats started backing away from it because you, you started hearing, look, you crazy conservatives, no one's really calling to abolish ICE. And then if you read liberal magazines, they'd say, no, actually, we really do want to abolish ICE. We, we do really, you know. um, But I, th I think this was an outgrowth of that, that ICE could no longer be trusted to perform its duties and that the best way to, to, put, you know, to, to halt any type of abuse is a 100-day moratorium, where, you know, uh, to paraphrase the former president, where we can figure out what the heck is going on. Um, I don't think that was a necessary step. I think it's kind of an inherently, the government should be very careful whenever they say, hey, for 100 days, we're just not going to enforce this law <laughs> because you're going to get a heck of a lot more of that particular crime if you say, oh, we're, you know, we're, not, we're no longer in the business of enforcing that law. You got you got a temporary respite from all that stuff. It's actually kind of a, a de facto amnesty in and of itself. So I think the Biden administration is on, uh, shaky ground here. I think the judge can make an argument that this is kind of out of the blue. But on the other hand, there's an appeals process to make sure that no judge is, you know, approaching these sorts of issues with a partisan axe to grind and uh, trying to stick it to an administration that he or she doesn't like. Well, and I think you saw that there was at least an attempt to start a caravan out of Honduras. I think the Guatemalan authorities pretty much uh, stopped it from moving further north. But uh, there were clips of folks saying, well, we got this 100-day window. Let's get up there and see what can happen. If you don't like kids in cages and you are confident they're not going to show up for their hearing, you know, the alternative is deportation. We should also keep in mind, Greg, that when Biden proposes a path to citizenship within eight years for those who have come here illegally, what he's proposing is not just amnesty. He's proposing amnesty with a lot of bureaucratic delays. And maybe that's what the federal government is best at, Greg. <laughs> Bad bureaucracy, that is their hallmark. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about something uh, additionally good. And that's that uh, we were sponsored today by Ritual Multivitamins. And look, we need to stay healthy. We want to keep a strong immune system as best as possible. Uh, and multivitamins can be a, a big step in making that possible. But do you really know what's in your multivitamin? A lot of them have sugars and GMOs, synthetic fillers, artificial colors. Sometimes you got animal byproducts like gelatin from hooves and hides. 
Ah, so tasty. Uh, but uh, they're all ingredients you can really find in some multivitamins, but not at Ritual, because Ritual's not your typical multivitamin. It's clean, vegan-friendly formulas made with key nutrients and forms that your body can actually use, so there are no shady extras. I'm taking Ritual now, just took one a few minutes ago. In fact, when it comes to taking multivitamins, it's simple, the website's really easy to use, and we can save you some money, too. You know, Ritual is the multivitamin reimagined. Ritual is formulated with key nutrients, including vitamin D3, to help fill gaps in your diet. Their fresh-tasting delayed-release capsules are designed to dissolve later in less sensitive areas of the stomach, so you can take them with or without food. And Ritual is made traceable, which means you'll always know where your nutrients come from, thanks to Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain. You deserve to know what's in your multivitamin. It's that simple, and that's why Ritual is offering Three Martini Lunch listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash martini to start your ritual today. Ritual.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about our bad martini now, and this one seems less likely now that at least for the next couple of years, assuming there are no major changes in the lineup in the U.S. Senate, uh, that the filibuster is going to stay in place. But the effort is underway now to make D.C., Washington, D.C., District of Columbia, a state. CBS News, Democratic Senator Tom Carper of Delaware, joined by a group of more than three dozen fellow Democrats, has introduced a bill to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state, continuing the years-long campaign to grant statehood to the nation's capital. While the D.C. statehood movement enjoys widespread support from Democrats who control the White House and both houses of Congress, Republican lawmakers generally oppose the effort, and the district is unlikely to become a state unless Democrats take the controversial step of eliminating the legislative filibuster. Carper introduced the companion bill to House legislation to make D.C. a state on Tuesday. The House passed a D.C. statehood bill last year. Uh, The bill has 38 co-sponsors in the Senate, including Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. President Biden said he would support D.C. statehood during the presidential campaign. So, Jim, there's good substantive reasons to oppose this from the right. Uh, There's also good math. I like having 100 votes in the Senate so you know where everything stands. And so unless you want to kick out a liberal state, uh, I don't think D.C. belongs. This is obviously an effort to get uh, a couple more votes in the Senate, another vote in Congress. But uh, for anyone who's lived around D.C. or even paid attention over the last generation, D.C.'s inability to govern itself in the most basic ways proves they're not ready for prime time here. Yeah. And one of the things I'm kind of surprised by is that Democrats are pushing with the the D.C. statehood first instead of Puerto Rican statehood. Um, I, I think Puerto Rico has a stronger case. Uh, it's not just that Puerto Ricans are full U.S. citizens. Um, geographically, it's more like a state. Its economy is more diverse like a state. Uh, this fairly broad public support, although they've had some issues about participation in the last couple of referendas. Um, and just kind of, you know, one little kind of, you know, useful detail is that, uh, you know, for those things, oh, we're just going to add two, Demo- two Democratic senators. Well, actually, the uh, at least last time I checked, the Republican non-voting Congresswoman from Puerto Rico is a Republican. Uh, they've had a Republican governor a couple times in the last couple of years. And if you want this to not be seen as a partisan grab, but you really believe, no, these are U.S. citizens, they should have two senators just like everybody else. I think the stronger case is with Puerto Rico. The problem with the District of Columbia is not that the people there um, are bad people or, or you know, can't function or can't govern themselves. So I think maybe you could make the quite a couple of people could point to some of that evidence. But at the heart of it, it's a city. In fact, it's not even a full city. It's like the urban core of a city. 
Um, and it is, you know, 68 square miles. Okay. The current small state, Rhode Island, is a more than 1,000 square miles. It functions under city government, not a territorial government. Um, and it just is different from what you're used to seeing in a state. For example, it has no agriculture of any kind, other than like maybe a handful of like urban farms and community gardens. Uh, no major airport, no major port, almost no manufacturing. For a long stretch, I, I believe they do not have a, a single traditional car dealership with a lot. That's you know, They have a Tesla dealership downtown. This types of things that are like significant in every other state don't really exist in the District of Columbia. Uh, private transportation and warehousing, building materials, landscaping services, um, only 900 district residents work in residential building construction. It's just different. By the way, this all seems like something I've written before. It's because I have. I don't normally walk around with all of these facts at my fingertips. <laughs> but um, So it's a city that also is probably completely dependent upon the surrounding states. Uh, all the water goes through the reservoir in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, and it's run by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. D.C. does not run its own water operations. All the solid waste goes to landfills in Virginia. The recyclables go to Maryland. All the electricity comes from other states. The federal government pays for the D.C. court system. All D.C. prisoners are in the Federal Bureau of Prisons system. The U.S. attorney handles all the serious local crime committed by adults, right? I mean, it just is different from every other state, and it's not designed to operate as a state. Therefore, it can't be a state. And, you know, it, it just is the, the sort of thing where this just looks like uh, a, a partisan power grab. Um, oh, by the way, polling doesn't do well. Uh, two thirds of Americans don't, uh, don't support statehood and oppose it. Oh, by the way, 51% of self-identified Democrats oppose statehood for the District of Columbia. But other than that, Greg, it's got a lot of great arguments for it. Wasn't the whole point of creating a federal city, as they originally called it, was so that uh, a state didn't have the seat of the federal government? Yeah. And so one of the plans that's been floated around is that they should create a, a new District of Columbia. You, you split them you know, into a state, into a actual keep that district. You include Capitol Hill, the National Mall, the White House, et cetera. Well, then this you know, 68 square mile space gets even smaller. And it becomes even more ridiculous because now it is not just a part of a city. It's an even smaller part of a city that should now be elevated to state status. And you can't begrudge the New York cities and Los Angeles's and Chicago's are all saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We're way bigger than Washington, D.C. is. Why do they get to be a separate state with two senators? And we don't. And it opens up a whole new can of worms. I know they have their taxation without representation thing. So... Should we just get rid of federal taxes for D.C. residents and call it a day? I'd be fine with that. I can move back across the river. Hey, guys, it's Mock and Daisy from The Chicks on the Right, and we're excited to tell you about our podcast, The Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. If you've been stressed lately with the information overload on social media or just don't feel like anything in the news makes sense anymore, don't worry, because we're here to clear things up. Every week, we discuss topics like cancel culture, national crisis, what's happening to our new generations. And if you're just plain tired of people trying to tell you what to do or how to live your life, we tackle that, too. Find out more by going to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment or review and subscribe. All right. Well, let's talk about our final martini here, Jim. And the mask wars continue, but the mask narrative keeps changing. Of course, during the first few weeks of the pandemic, you had Dr. Fauci and others saying, no, 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 masks aren't really going to help you very much. Uh, don't pay attention to that. And we later found out that that was basically a major distraction attempt to make sure that uh, first responders had their appropriate supply of masks. Okay. And then uh, masks became only necessary if you can't stay within six feet of people. And now if you're not wearing a mask, 
Oh my gosh, uh, you are a horrible, horrible person. And now, if you're only wearing one mask, Jim, uh, you might be a horrible person, at least not doing enough to keep yourself safe. Uh, Dr. Fauci, among others, now saying that one mask is better than none, but two masks are definitely better than one, and they can uh, they can help protect you. And we're now having a debate about what the proper combination of two masks is. Do you have the surgical mask, kind of the paper mask with the cloth mask over it? Does one of them have to be an N95? Is the cloth mask actually by itself not doing that much good? Uh, You'd think after almost a year of this, Jim, somebody would have a clue, but the narrative keeps changing and uh, nobody seems to know what the actual facts are here. Greg, you look at this and you wonder, have these people decided that getting people to wear masks has been too easy, too simple, too free of controversy? And now it's time to move on to a real challenge, getting people to wear two masks. How about three? Do I see, do I hear four? It feels like we're an auction or something like that. I am reminded, Greg, of the, it feels like this arms race amongst razor companies, not Dollar Shave Club, the <laughs> former sponsor on this wonderful podcast. But, you know, like the idea of like Schick and, and Gillette, every time you go, four razors, then five razors. It's just like it gets bigger and bigger. You're like, I, I kind of feel like after three, you're doing fine. I, I'm not sure what that fourth razor is going to catch the first three. If, the first, if, if that hair managed to get past the first three, I'm not feeling so great about the chance of the fourth one. Look, I, you know, the, the, the exasperation with the restrictions on our daily life are, are just mounting and mounting. We could have talked about schools today, but uh, Greg has recognized that every time the topic comes up and every, sometimes someone mentions the uh, Authenticity Woods uh, local teachers union, I just start screaming profanities at the top of my lungs and it's no longer acceptable for a family podcast. You know, look, does two masks help? Sure. I've seen a couple people who are wearing both a mask and a face shield. And, and if you want to go with that, fine. That's great. You're going to have a really tough time getting people to double mask. We are at the end of January and we are still fighting to get people to put it above their nose. Right. This is kind of recognized the idea of double masking is just not going to do it. Um, it's one of those things like we need to get closer to normal. We're already seeing this argument where we're now up to 20 some million people. We finally hit the, th- the threshold we were supposed to get at the end of December. Um, people who are vaccinated and get that second shot two weeks later, they're really no longer a threat of either catching the virus or really transmitting the virus. And you've seen some people insisting, no, 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 you got to keep your mask on. Well, here's the thing. What, what I think a whole bunch of, of both health experts, government experts, and anybody who can you know, think a little bit down the road can recognize, at some point in a month or two or two months or, or further down the road, you're going to have people who, don't, who, are, who, who now are fully vaccinated and who aren't really a threat. And they're going to say, hey, I don't want to wear a mask. And then there are a whole bunch of the rest of us who are not front of the line and who haven't had a chance to get vaccinated yet. So we're going to have to still wearing our masks. So you're going to have people walking around and some people won't be wearing masks and people will say, oh, should you be wearing masks? Like, no, no, I'm vaccinated. And I guess some people will have cards. They're, they're giving you people cards to, I don't know, they need to get on a plane or, or anything like that. But it's one of those things where you don't want to end up in a two-tiered society where some people have to wear masks and some people don't because then people are going to start taking off their masks. So the, the kind of unspoken rule is going to be wear your mask until everybody who wants the vaccine can get it. You're going to have a tough time getting people to buy into it. I think people just generally don't like masks in general. But if you say to people, look, we don't want for the for the for the sake of not exacerbating social divisions and not to make other people who have to wear masks feel bad, can you wear your mask a little longer? Maybe you'll get some some people to go along with that. Um, but the idea of please wear two masks. No, no, it's not. The only other good news, by the way, is it's still winter. So I think figure are most people wearing scarves anyway? Yeah, I don't know about over their faces, but uh, can you imagine being like the uh, the grocery store manager and coming up to someone and, sir, I'm not sure if you have two masks on. Can you show me? <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, 
Sir, I need you to take off one mask so I can make sure you have a second mask under. <laughs> what? I can't, you know. Well, Jim, one of the things people are, are, are saying in reaction to this is, at this point, it almost seems like Dr. Fauci and some of these other people are coming up with suggestions just to see how obedient people will be. And so maybe it'll be three, maybe it'll be four. I'm hoping we've run into the thing that even if Fauci endorses this, the public is just going to put up both hands and go, no way. Guess what the Chinese are doing, Jim? They're rolling out anal swab tests for COVID. This is Forbes. As Chinese authorities struggle to contain rising COVID-19 infections ahead of the Lunar New Year celebrations, Beijing has introduced anal swabs as a new type of coronavirus test that could detect the virus more accurately. State-run TV reports the tests are reserved for high-risk cases, although there does not appear to be a coordinated policy for them. It does include passengers arriving in Beijing, residents of quarantine centers, and according to local officials, a group of more than 1,000 school children and teachers believed to be exposed to the virus. Uh, the, the thing here is, though, that they claim they're more accurate than the throat and nose tests because the bacteria lives longer in that part of your body. The test includes inserting a cotton-tipped swab about one to two inches, you know where, and then will be tested for the virus. Jim, Americans, I hope would say absolutely not if anybody even hints going in that direction. Yeah. If, if any listeners are like, hey, how did this not become one of the three martinis of the day? <laughs> listeners, you know, Greg and I are 12-year-old boys at heart, and there are just so many opportunities for jokes about size, for jokes about this policy being a pain in the tush, for jokes about whether they can check the prostate while they're up there and checking. Um, and also just about, you know, of all the places for China to invade, that's the last place I expected. I'm going to stop there, Greg. We could have done an entire show on this and it would have just been utterly tasteless, utterly off color, blue material, and not a family podcast. So I'm just going to stop myself there before we go any further. No. Stop right there, just as the people who are getting those tests are saying themselves. Yes, that has to be an absolute no all the way across the board. Jim, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our friends over at Ritual, ritual.com slash martini for your multivitamins. Uh, we can save you some money there too. Also, uh, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We are grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And please join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.